director was just bragging about our team, but I just want to say this. As we think about this nation and how broken it is, so many of the things that are going on in our world right now at, our, at a family level and, a, and, a, and children are <laughs> in desperate need of care and love and support, and there's so much brokenness in this world. Like, how much now, more than ever, do we need ministry to our children? How much now, more than ever, do we need ministry to students and youth and college kids? And so we want to elevate and just thank God for those who are. Our, our director of children's ministry today just said, I just want to thank God for our team. We have this lady in our church that loves children's ministry, and she called and said, I know it's President's Day weekend. Do you need anyone to serve? And she said, no, we're good. We're across the board. But in her mind, she thought of this, this lady in our church who's a school teacher during the day all week, and she serves in children's ministry, and uh, her husband is on the Mexico mission team right now, and she's at home alone with her uh, two young kids. And so uh, Megan reached out to her and said, would you like a break? We have this person that's volunteered to fill in for anybody. Would you like a break? And she said, no, this is my favorite thing to do all week. I, I've been looking so forward to being with my kids this week. No, I don't want a break. Praise God for Haley. Praise God for that heart. That this is what we need. This is what we need. So uh, let's not overlook, even though it may feel mundane, ministry today going on to our children and, and nursery and so forth. This is, this is important as we lament as a nation, as we look at the needs of our nation, how desperately do we need to minister to one another, to care for one another, and to not let violence and evil blossom among us, especially among our children. Let's care for one another. We're a covenant community. We need one another. We support one another. We encourage one another, and we pray, we pray for our nation. If you've got a Bible, let's turn this morning to uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 21. If you're new here, we're studying the book of Galatians. Uh, we try really hard to give a lot of background, so we're sort of uh, in the middle, uh, towards the end of the second chapter, but uh, we hope to catch you up. All the sermons are online. Uh, you can listen uh, to those at any time. Today we're looking at one of the most crucial parts of the letter that Paul wrote, and he's talking about an incredibly important subject. We're going to look at verses 15 through 21. It's in your bulletin, and it's on the screen as well. Let's read together. I'll read, and, and would you listen and read along? Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners in Christ then a, or excuse me if we too were found to be sinners is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I re rebuild what I tore down I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. No one will probably, uh, when I pass away and people gather and tell stories about me, they're not going to talk about how handy I was. 
no one's going to say, man, he just knew everything about tools and how to fix stuff. And I have learned over the years how to do some stuff. I can, I can actually change the brakes in my car. Uh, I can change the oil in all of our cars, uh, change a tire, of course. I've learned how to do the maintenance on our pool, uh, uh, the pool pump, the pool filter, the chemicals, all that. I handle all that myself. Pretty impressive, right? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've learned some of the essentials, right? How to just do maintenance and that kind of thing. But when it goes beyond easy stuff, I'm really lost. But I have these two neighbors uh, in our neighborhood, right in our cul-de-sac, that are super helpful, that know a lot. And there's one in particular that pretty much knows everything about everything. When I mean everything, I literally mean about everything. But especially mechanical stuff and just how stuff works. So He's also very generous with his time and his tools, and so he'll be helping me. We could be working on our hot water heater. We could be working on uh, my car, garage door, you name it, and eventually we'll get to a place where he'll say, oh, well, you know, the problem, it's the Switzer valve or whatever, you know. And I'm like, what? And we need to go to Home Depot and get an X180 Part 7D, you know, whatever, and I, at that point, I'm absolutely lost. I just say, take me to Home Depot, point, tell me what we need, right? I'll pay, we'll go back, and I'll I'll watch you work. <laughs> and we do. That's exactly what we do. And I, I buy him lunch. Wendy, something extravagant. And <laughs> as he's throwing out all that jargon, you need Fitzer valve, gauze pads, three-in-one oil, that kind of thing. It's just going over my head, and my brain turns off. I don't listen anymore, right? I'm just going, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's like on Peanuts, the, the teacher's voice is blomp, 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 blomp. And so today, Paul is going to talk about a term in our passage. The term is justification by faith alone. It's, uh, that's a phrase, but it's, the, it's justification. And when you hear this word today, I'm afraid that you're going to tune out and go, ah, just a theological jargon. It's not that important. It's not that big of a, you know, it's somebody like pastors and elders and theologians, they need to know that kind of terminology. But as a normal Christian, I don't need to know about that. But this is essential. This is what I want to plead with you. This doctrine of justification, whether you're literally just walking to church for the first time and want to know what Christianity is, uh, you need to understand this term. And if you've been walking with God for a long time, you definitely need, every Christian needs to know what the doctrine of justification means. And I know you don't like the word doctrine, and, and we're using theological jargon this morning because Paul does. You need this. This is not one of those esoteric things that people just argue about, and trust me, there's lots in theology where people get into so much minute detail that frankly, you may not need to focus as much, but this is not one of those occasions. Justification is critical. First of all, some background. Paul is writing the churches in Galatia. He's very upset with them. Why? Because they have been listening to false teachers who have been coming along and telling them, you need to add to the gospel of grace. So we've been saying that the gospel, it's on the front cover of your bulletin, that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing else. It's faith in Jesus Christ plus absolutely nothing else. But they have come along and saying, what you need to do is have Jesus. So they didn't remove Jesus. They said, have faith in Jesus, but add to him the works of the law. Be justified through, he says, the works of the law. And what they're doing is adding to the gospel. And Paul says in chapter 1, that's a false gospel. When you add anything, when you tack anything on to faith in Jesus Christ, you have now created, Paul says, a false gospel. And so Paul's angry. He's intense. And the, the tone of this letter has, 
an edge to it because he is so concerned for you, for me, for them that we not fall into the trap of believing a gospel that is actually not good news. That's what the word gospel means. This morning we're going to look at this. What is the meaning of justification? How am I justified? What does justification not mean? Okay. And what does it do? What is the meaning? How? What does it not mean? And what does it do in our life? First of all, what is justification? Verse 16, Paul says, We know, we apostles, even though we used to be Jewish, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. He says that once. Not by works, but through faith. Second, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Three times in this passage he uses the word justification, and three times he also tells us, and you're not justified this way. We'll get to that in just a minute. What is justification? What does this mean? You've read it in the New Testament, perhaps. If you're, if you're new to Christianity, you've probably heard this term even, perhaps. But what does it mean? Justification is a legal term, and the opposite of it is condemnation. You know what that means. Judgment. Justice. Justification means that although I am still a sinner, and I am, not only does God not condemn me because of my faith in Jesus, but instead, he declares me to be just or righteous. Martin Luther had this phrase in Latin where he would say, simul ustus et peccator. I know, okay, you don't maybe have to remember that, but here's what it means. It means that I am simultaneously, at the same time, I am still a broken, fallen sinner, and yet I am at the very same time reckoned as righteous or just. I, that's me. I am still broken and fallen and sinful, and yet God has declared me as righteous. Now, it's going to take some time. Let's keep unpacking it. J.I. Packer has a great definition for justification. To justify in the Bible means to declare of someone who's on trial. Okay, it's a legal term that would be used in a court, a forensic term. To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Let me say that again. He is not liable to any penalty. He's no longer condemned but instead is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation it's that of acquittal and legal immunity how on earth is that possible that sinful people unrighteous people unholy people myself you could be acquitted of their sin and called righteous instead and not only called righteous because that is really what justification is it's a declaration of our righteousness by God not only that but then have the privileges 
of somebody who has kept the law. And of another simple way to keep defining justification, talk about what it is. It's just as if I had never sinned. That's how God is viewing me, okay? And just as if I had kept the law my whole life. How does God see you through the lens of justification? Just as if you had never sinned. And, so you have no debt against him. And as if you have kept the law your whole life. So your spiritual account is full. No debt and a full account. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is um, sort of the backbone of, of what our church believes, says, ask this, what is justification? What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons us of all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I'm gonna read it to you again. Justification, this term that we're defining. What is it? What does it mean? Well, it's an act of God's free grace. Grace, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. it. It's an act of God's grace where God declares he pardons us of all our sins. You're forgiven. But it goes beyond that. So often we think the gospel is simply that we're forgiven of our sins, but it goes even more profound than that. It's more beautiful than that. He also accepts us as righteous in his sight. How can he do that? That would be unrighteous for God to say, somebody who isn't righteous, you're righteous. But no, no, it's because only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed, we're gonna have to define that, to us and received by faith alone. Because of Jesus' death in his life, imputed, okay, now we gotta define that. If we're gonna really understand uh, uh, justification, well, what does that mean? Because it's saying not only in justification are you declared righteous and pardoned of all your sin, you're also given something, imputed something of Christ's righteousness. This word imputed means credited to. Credited to. Imagine, this will not be difficult for some of you, <laughs> that you have enormous student debt and credit card debt. A practical example. And you go to a banker, your lender, let's assume that you have one lender for all of this. You've consolidated all your debt. And you go to this lender and you plead for mercy. This probably won't happen in real life, by the way. You plead for mercy and the lender gets tears in her eyes and says, well, this is, this is horrible. I cancel your debt, all of it. Out of sheer act of grace and mercy, I'm gonna cancel your debt. Now, in doing that, for a bank to cancel your debt, how would that happen? Somebody would have to pay for that debt, would they not? You say, well, it's, what does it matter to the bank? You know, it's, it's $60,000, but to them, you know, that's nothing. That's, yeah, but they have to pay it. If a bank says, you don't owe us, that means that they are paying it, meaning the, the, the university's already been paid, uh, Target's been paid, Walmart's been paid by your credit card debt. Somebody has to be paid, right? The, de the debt would be covered by the bank. The bank would say, we're pardoning it, but that means they're paying. In our analogy here, what that means is that Christ has pardoned us, God the Father has pardoned us all of, of us by our sin, by how? Through Christ's death on the cross. 
This isn't just hypothetical mumbo-jumbo. I want you to understand like, how this works and why the gospel is such good news. I have a debt against God, and God forgives me, but the reason why Jesus Christ didn't show up one day and say, hey, you're forgiven. I'm, I'm a messenger for God. I'm actually his son, and I just want you to know it's all good. You know, you're forgiven. We're cool. No, instead he shows up as an infant, right, born of a virgin, lives his life for 33 years, and then dies a cruel death on the cross. And the reason for that death, it was a substitution. It was payment. I, my sin has broken God's law, but it goes more than that. It's offensive to God. I can't have a right relationship with him apart from a mediator, apart from, from somebody paying the debt. You say, I don't like this idea of, of debt and God being not okay with my sin, but that's true of all of us. If somebody really hurts you, there's a debt. There's a debt that has to be paid, right? Emotionally, like for you to actually forgive someone, I'm not just talking about, ah, oh, you kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. I mean, really hurt you, there's a payment that has to be paid. And if you're actually gonna forgive that person, that's no easy thing. It's no different for God. And imagine the sins of the whole world separating him and us. He sends the son to die to pay the debt. Next, though, imagine in our analogy about credit and debt. So you've got all this student debt. You've got all this credit card debt. You go to the lender and you say, please, please forgive me. And to your great surprise, they say, it's all gone. I'm going to wipe away all $60,000 of your debt. It's gone. And you get home, and you can't believe this is true, and so you get online to your account. You, you do all your banking through one account, okay? So you get online, you log in, just to make sure. Did they really cancel this debt? Is my student loan still there? And it's, it's gone, but to your surprise, something else has happened. There's $10 million in your account. <laughs> That's imputation. Justification by faith alone means this, that God not only forgives you of your sin, and cancels your debt, pardons you of all your sin. But God now sees you as just. Abraham believed God, and God reckoned him as righteous. How? Why? Where does that righteousness come from? Imputation is when God says, I not only forgive you, I accept you, and I see you as righteous. Not only... uh, just as if you've never sinned, but just as if you have kept the law your whole life. You're now given, as a gift from God, the righteousness of his son. You're imputed, credited, account, you know, a gift of real righteousness. The son did not just come to die, he also came to live, and in his life, he earned human righteousness. Amen? So when you put your faith in him, the father sees the Son and His obedience, you're not only pardoned, you're accepted and seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. And this is so beautiful. The Father, when I think of the Father looking upon me, I think of He sees all of my sin and He sees all the ways in which I fail Him, all the ways in which I'm living in ways that I ought not to live and failing to do those things I ought to have done. But He doesn't. <laughs> He sees me through the lens of his own son. And he says, my beloved son. And he sees you and says, my beloved daughter, my beloved son. I seize the righteousness of Christ. This is how good the good news is. Next, how how could somebody get that in their life? 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. <laughs> in order to be justified, how? By faith in Christ. Not by works. Because by works of the law, no one will ever be declared just given this gift of his righteousness. Paul not only tells us how to be justified three times, he also tells how we will never be justified three times in the same passage. Not through works, but by faith. Not through works, but by faith. We've believed, not by works, but through faith. Okay, Paul, we get it. It's not by works of the law that anyone will ever be justified, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we get it, we get it. No, you don't. You don't get it. You don't get it. You, you keep going back to works of the law, and so do I. We keep going back trying to justify ourselves, create a righteousness of our own. The reason why Christians are hypocrite and hypocrites in our culture is because they're not living in line with the gospel. We've been talking about this for weeks. Not centering their, their life around the fact that it's all by grace, that they're broken, fallen sinners in need of this gracious act of God, and that they are saved not by works of the law, but because God was gracious to them in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. And if you can own that, you can freely repent of your sins. And if you own that, that's living in line with the gospel. People who follow Jesus ought to be a people that can freely admit their sin, can freely admit they've harmed another, can freely admit that they've failed in marriage, parenting, at work. But we are often cloaked in, cloaked in self-righteousness and defensiveness, aren't we? Well, you don't know. You don't know how good I've been. You don't know the backstory. You don't know. Blah, blah. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. The yeah, buts show that you're not living in line with the gospel. You're cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, not by works of the law. When you're living by works of the law, then you have to prove yourself. You have to be defensive. You have to be filled with self-righteousness. I have to be better than you. To be saved by works of the law, I have to stand out. I have to be a little bit better than everyone else. Here's what's great about the gospel. I don't have to be better than you, <laughs> even though I'm your pastor. Some of you are way better than me. That's fine, because that's, you're not my standard. Jesus Christ's holy, perfect standard is, and I could never live up to it, so I have his gift of righteousness given to me, imputed to me. That's what I have to live in. And it's by faith, faith alone, nothing else. It's not my works, it's not the fact that I'm a pastor, that I'm a decent dad, that I'm an okay husband, that I do okay at work, that I treat people nice, that I go to church, that I teach the Bible, etc., etc. None of that, that I serve the poor, that I've done whatever. None of that accounts for it. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, not faith in faith. As a culture, that's kind of where we are. I just believe. Belief in belief and faith in faith does not make you right from God, with God. It is faith in a particular person, the man, Jesus Christ, who laid death in his grave. We sing of this song. We believe in his life and his death and his resurrection. So it's not simply faith. I believe. I believe there is a God. That's good. The whole world testifies to that reality. All of creation cries out. 
But to be saved, to be forgiven, to be justified, you need a particular faith in the man Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. He lived a life that you should have lived and, and have never lived. He died a death in your place. You deserved the death he deserved, that he received. He did not deserve it. You did. So did I. And then he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father, and he promises to come back as the king of the universe, because he is that. It's faith in that man. Faith in Christ is the vehicle, the means by which, in him alone. And not just working yourself up in some emotion, saying, I believe. No, I mean believing. And, and another word to equate with faith would be love. I hope in Christ. I love Christ. I turn from my sin. I believe in him, hope in him, trust him. Not simply doing some religious duty, walking an aisle, praying a prayer at some event, having an emotional experience, and then walking away for a lifetime. It is hope, trust, faith. How am I justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it not mean? What does justification mean? I just explained it. And we'll keep talking about it in this series. So if you didn't quite get it just yet, hang in there. Keep doing the work. You need to understand this. What does it not mean? Cheap grace. But, verse 17 through 19, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, and by the way, you will be, but is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So that I might live to God. The gospel of grace is so radical. Paul is so radical in the way he's describing justification by grace through faith that if you're listening <laughs> to what he's saying, what I'm trying to say this morning is, the inevitable question you're going to ask is, well, does that mean then that I can simply believe in a moment and trust God by faith and say, I, I believe, I believe, have my sins forgiven, and then say, thank you for that salvation. I will walk away, and now I'm going to live for myself for the rest of my life. I'm going to live like hell. I'm going to live for myself, for the devil, for whatever. I'm just going to live however I like. Thank you for that grace. Thanks for declaring me righteous. Thank you for robing me in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for imputation. That's all great. Now I will live for myself. People call that cheap grace. People often rip on the doctrine of justification and say, no, it can't be that. It can't possibly be that. It has to also be our righteousness because, listen, that's too good. That's too good to be true. But what Paul is saying is, I am not saying that, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of the first verses, I, two passages this morning that I first memorized when I first started following Jesus was 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 2.20, which is in our passage. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it can never just be some like spiritual transaction, like a financial deal, where like, I just don't want to go to hell, Jesus. Thanks for the forgiveness. Jesus, in that moment, not only becomes your Savior, he becomes your Lord, and you say, well, that sounds like works of the law. No, you're righteous. You're made righteous by faith, and then you have, you become a new creation in Christ, Paul says. Your heart 
is changed. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Your inside, begin, the interior of your life, your motivational structures begin to change. You now love him. You love God. Paul says, look, hey, <laughs> if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What he's saying is, look, no, this does not mean that Christ is a servant of sin. This is not cheap grace. In Tim Keller's book, Galatians for You, which is a few copies are out there still that you could pick up and, and follow along in this study, he says, but if someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on with the same sinful lifestyle, rebuilding the sinfulness that Christ died to destroy the penalty for, making no effort to change, it proves that this person never really grasped the gospel but was just looking for an excuse to live in disobedience to God. It's not cheap grace. It's life-changing grace. I wish it meant that we were zapped into spiritual sanctification immediately, that none of us sinned anymore. That's also not true. So you're still a broken, fallen sinner. So don't hear that. So you're like, oh my gosh, I still sin. Of course you do. The question is, do you battle it? Do you hunger for more? Do you walk away? Do you repent of your sins? If you're simply saying, I just want forgiveness and live for myself, you don't get it yet. That's not faith in Jesus. Again, Paul then says, he died to the law that he might live for God. How do you live for God by dying to his law? How do you live for God by dying to his law? He has died to the law as a way to be saved, Paul means in this passage. How do you live for God by dying to his law? He's, he's died to the law saying, I'm no longer going to seek justification by works of the law. Uh, instead, he has died to the condemnation of the law. Have you died to the condemnation of the law yet? <laughs> that because your sins are forgiven and you're justified in Christ, the law can no longer condemn you. Paul said in Romans 7, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law, and I wouldn't have known that I was unable to keep the law until uh, I was shown I was a sinner through buying, trying to keep the law. That's not, that's not verbatim his words. Those are my explanation. That was my experience. I was in high school. Um, I had lived in Indiana, and for some reason, I did not find myself culturally around Christianity as much in Indiana as I did in central Kentucky when we moved there. I mean, Indiana is still the Bible Belt, but central Kentucky felt way more Bible Beltish uh, to me. And all of a sudden, I'm around all these people that are professing Christ, going to church, going to all these different ministries like Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and they're talking about it constantly. And I kind of found myself on the outside looking in. I don't really care about God that much, not all that spiritual, and I know I'm not a very good person. <laughs> so I decide I'm going to be like them. I like how nice they are. I like how they dress. I like how they talk. They're a little bit nicer than my friends uh, that I've had previously. Like, I'm going to try this experiment. I'm going to be good like them. I'm going to be nice like them. And for the first time in my life, I was trying to be good at some level. <laughs> It's only 15, you know, it takes some of us longer than others, you know. But I'm going to truly attempt to be better, to be nice, to be living for myself less, to try to actually have a heart for other people. And it was through that experience that I actually became a Christian because I kept trying to be better, not just outwardly, but inwardly, 
I kept trying to say, like, I don't know if I really care about people the way that I should, and my heart towards them is not all that great. Like, and I kept trying inwardly to be a better person. Like I said, not just the outward stuff, but my heart and my motivation. And what I found was I couldn't change, and it terrified me. And then my sophomore year, it's largely what led me to Jesus. We died of the law. Why? Because it, it can no longer condemn you but it leads us, as we try to keep the law, it leads us to show you need grace. Finally, what does justification do? It changes our motivation. The gospel of grace can change us from the inside. Galatians 2.20 was another passage. I was in this ministry where I was meeting with this, this man. I've told you about him before, and we would study the Bible together, and, and the first things he had me do was start memorizing some scripture, and one of them was Galatians 2.20. The other was 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I would walk around Purdue with these little cards going, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I have been crucified. With, what is the rest of it? I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and offered himself up for me. And I said it over and over. Why? Well, I had a hard time memorizing stuff to begin with. But secondly, I just was like, I'm going to cling to this verse. I'm this young man at this huge university surrounded by temptation, and I'm trying to fight for my faith. And I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it's weird because he says this, but the life I live in the body, so I, I've been unified with Christ. He died to sin, and so my sinfulness is dead. He crucified it, but I still have this life to live in this flesh, he says, but meaning not the sinful nature here, but his literal body. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he offered himself up for me. The more you reflect on justification by grace, if you really know him and have actually had faith, is it will change you now from the inside to want to obey God, not in order to get saved, but because you are. Because you love him, and trust me, there's still so many ways in which everyone in this room needs to grow and is not there yet, but it is his justifying grace that causes me to say, you loved me and gave yourself up for me. How can I not keep striving after knowing you more, loving you more, serving you more? How do I not keep doing this? Motivational change. Tim Keller writes in the same book, Paul wants us to understand that our acceptance gives us a new and stronger motive for obeying God than justification by works could ever do. Let me say it again. Paul wants us to understand that our acceptance in justification by faith gives us a new and stronger motive for obeying God than justification by works ever could. Grace, you're loved, you're accepted, you don't have to earn it. That now frees me to go live my life for God, not having to worry about every time I blow it, every time I sin, what are my motives? Like I can go out now and love God and love my neighbor pursuing that with freedom knowing that I'm loved and accepted. When we're seeking salvation through our works and the works of the law, we can never rest. It's never enough. It's never enough. But when I'm resting in justification by faith, I can rest. My old life died on the cross, and now I can live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in him.
and it changes everything. Two weeks ago, I was in Los Angeles for some training for guys who've planted churches and who want to coach other people who are now currently planting churches, and we were there with some guys from New York, and they were training us, and they did this exercise where they gave us a sermon, and all of us pastors are in this room, there's about 20 of us, to sit and quietly read and not talk, just read through parts of the sermon and then talk about that. And I want to read an excerpt from that time where we read. It's from an old sermon, one of the Puritans named Thomas Wilcox. He lived between 1621 and 1687, and he wrote a sermon called Honey Out of the Rock. And I just want you to meditate on this again, like, like we did during the call to worship. Listen, just listen. This is true faith. To rest upon the everlasting mountains of God's love and grace in Christ Jesus. And to live continually in the sight of Christ's infinite righteousness and merits. We tend to just look at our sin. We tend to just look at ourselves. Am I good? Am I bad? Am I right? Am I wrong? But he says, no, look at Christ. Rest on on him, on the everlasting mountains of his love and his grace, and to live continually in the sight of his infinite righteousness and his merits. That alone will change you. Without that, the heart is spiritually impotent. True faith means to keep gazing on the grace of Jesus and then to see the full vileness, yet littleness, of your own sin in comparison to Christ's righteousness. To see it and go, okay, I confess that. I see it. It's true. It's vile. It's little. It's small. It's petty. Look at me. But then it's to see everything forgiven and with that in mind to pray and hear and to walk. Looking at the sun weakens the eye, the S-U-N sun. But the more you look to Christ, the son of righteousness, the stronger and clearer will the eye of faith be. Look only at Christ and you'll love him and live on him. Think on him continually. If you want to see sin's sinfulness, to loathe it and mourn, then do not stand looking upon your sin, but look upon Christ first as suffering and satisfying every law of God for you. If you want to grow in grace and in sanctification, do not stand gazing upon that either. Always begin by looking at the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Justification by faith is not just for J.I. Packer and theologians and professors and pastors. Paul is writing to just common Christians in the city of Galatia, saying, you need to understand this. You can't be justified. You can't be saved. You can't be made right, forgiven, pardoned by God by just being a religious person, by works of law. It's by faith in Jesus only. And if you want to be sanctified and you want to grow more and more, and and if you really know him, you will want that. The answer to your sanctification is not more work. It's in meditating on the glory of your justification, on the beauty of it, and being compelled from the inside out more and more into his image. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Paul's
fighting spirit and for how he worked so hard to make sure that we would understand this, how clear the gospel is. And in this life, in this imperfect life of ours where we still have the sinful nature, where we're still broken, we're still fallen, we still have so far to go, we're so tempted to just get caught up in our own sense of shame, our own sinfulness, all the ways in which we still fail you. But Father, may we look on you, even right in this moment. May we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.